Guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. On what issue could one argue that the church, and especially its leadership among the clergy, has failed in its mandate to imitate its Savior and lay down their lives for the sheep, allowing them to be scattered? In 1990, the bishops of the Philippine Islands issued a startling statement. It was in response to an initiative of the Philippine government to create a zero population growth program that would prevent what was considered at the time an unsustainable level of, uh, of, of births. This, of course, would rely heavily on the widespread encouragement and subsidy of contraceptives and sterilizations. But in the midst of the very direct letter in which they articulated the reasons why this would be a, a terrible idea, and a kind of aside, they paused in their teaching and made a, a striking confession that really, that really moved me. And I'd like to read that to you in full. Quote, It is said that when seeking ways of regulating births, only 5% of you consult God. In the face of this unfortunate fact, we, your pastors, have been remiss. How few there are among you whom we have reached. There have been some couples eager to share their expertise and values on this matter with others, They tell us that they did not receive adequate support from their priests. We did not give them due attention, believing then that this ministry consisted simply by imparting a technique, and that was best left to married couples. Only recently have we discovered how deep your yearning is for God to be present in your married life. But we did not then know how to help you discover God's presence and activity in your mission of Christian parenting. Conflicted with doubt about alternatives to contraceptive technology, we abandoned you to your confused and lonely consciences with only an excuse. Follow what your conscience tells you. How little we realized that it was our consciences that needed to be formed first. A greater concern would have led us to discover that religious hunger in you. End quote. very humbling confession that those bishops made. And I read it to you in part because this July, in the church, we'll be marking an important anniversary. Fifty years ago, a landmark teaching document was issued by the Holy Father, Pope Paul VI, entitled Humanae Vitae, the English title on the regulation of birth. In some respects, I would say it's probably one of the most important teachings, the most significant teachings of the church in the 20th century, in large part because it was so widely rejected, derided, mocked, and at best, simply ignored. 
despite its solemn nature. The claim of that document was this. In order for sexual union between two persons to be morally good, it must be both unitive and procreative. That is to say, it is moral only when expressing love between two people who are married and who remain open to the conception of a child. When, through a conscious choice, those partners introduce an artificial block to their procreation, in other words, when they separate the unitive aspect of their act with, from its procreative aspect of their act, they do something which is contrary to God's will and therefore immoral. The occasion of this document, those of you that were alive at the time may remember, the occasion of this document was the invention of a contraceptive that could be taken orally to suppress a woman's fertility. Now this was a new thing, obviously. Uh, throughout Christian history, it had been universally condemned, this act of sterilizing sexual union. In the 1930s, the first allowance was made in the Anglican Church. A conference said in certain circumstances, grave circumstances, a couple may uh, separate their unitive and procreative dimensions of, this, of, this, of their sexual union. When that artificial contraceptive was invented, most churches followed suit. They said, this doesn't seem to have the kind of problems, ethically, that physical methods of contraception had. And everyone expected the Catholic Church to do the same. However, in 1968, after a deep study, prayerful consideration and discernment, consultation with experts and moral theologians and the immemorial tradition of the church, Pope Paul VI exercised his teaching office and he announced that this innovation was not permissible. That he had no power to give Catholics permission to use artificial contraceptives. This was a shock. This was a tidal wave. Everyone dismissed or questioned, how can this be? I won't say everyone. A vast majority, both within and without the church. In general, the most charitable interpretation, I would say, the most charitable reaction was something along the lines of, well, these elderly Italian guys don't really know the circumstances on the ground, and, and they probably don't know what they're talking about, and so we'll We'll set aside this teaching and, and, and politely ignore it. In a sense, people said, hey, you don't play the game? You don't play at a game? You don't make other rules, huh? <laughs> this was not just the laity, by the way. As I mentioned in that homily, or excuse me, the apology, the very beginning of my homily, that the priests and even bishops themselves handled it in that way. A priest of this diocese, a man that I, I admire as a, as a mentor, someone uh, to whom I look for, for guidance, told me a story. He was a pastor in this diocese back in the early 1970s when this document was released. And he spoke about how the priests got together and, and asked, well, what are we supposed to do about this? How do we handle it? The resolution was just... Remain silent, say nothing. But people kept asking, what, what are we supposed to do about this? Do we have to follow this teaching? Is this something that's, that's important enough to make a sacrifice to do? 
Instruct us, form us. And so this, this priest finally put together a homily to try to address the question. And what he did, as he told me, was he quoted three moral theologians who were in favor of the Pope's teaching. And then he quoted three who dissented. And he left it at that. You make up your own mind. That was how it was handled in a lot of different places. That was actually a very polite and charitable way of doing it. The dissent in the United States was often vehement and direct and fierce. What was interesting about that story is that that very day, after that homily, one of his parishioners was waiting for him afterwards and spoke with him and said, Father, if you really believe what you just said, you need to leave the priesthood. I run an insurance firm. I can give you a job. We'll start you at 25000 a year, which was good money back then. And uh, you need to stop doing this kind of damage. And as this priest related to me, that was the moment where he was confronted with his own lack of faith. I don't trust. I, I don't believe. And at that moment, he chose, I'm, I'm with the Holy Father. And it was good that he did, because the Holy Father was right. He was right, even prophetic. Fifty years after that document was promulgated, not only have its predictions been proven, but they've been proven as few predictions ever are, by people who have no interest in supporting its conclusions, by people who are public adversaries of the church, scholars who have no interest whatsoever in propping up the teaching of the Catholic Church. There's been a dramatic verification of his prediction of what would happen if contraceptives, contraceptives became widely used. There were four predictions. The first, there would be a general lowering of moral standards throughout society. The second, a rise in infidelity and divorce. The third, a lessening of respect of women by men. And fourth, the coercive use of reproductive technologies by governments. Now, if you're informed in any way, if you have uh, a, even a, a toe in the waters of popular culture, you know how many of these things are true. I'm not going to go into great detail about that evidence. I am going to post some essays on our website when I put up this podcast at diddycenter.org that if you want that data, you can dig up as much as you want. Have at it to your heart's content. But I'd just like to highlight two particular points that Pope Paul made in that document. First, he said, not much experience is needed to be fully aware of human weakness and to understand that human beings, and especially the young, who are so exposed to temptation, they need incentives to keep the moral law. And it is an evil thing to make it easy for them to break that law. The second point Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires, no longer considering her as his partner whom he should surround with care and affection. Any of us paying attention to 
these revelations being made in the media, which seem to come faster and faster and more frequent, about the abusive relationships between men in power and women who, for whatever reason, are, are um, forced to accept their advances, points out to us how true it was. Nobody asked at the time who really benefits from these technological advances. With 50 years of hindsight, we can see contraception has released men to a historically unprecedented degree from responsibility for their sexual desires and their sexual aggression. Fertility is a woman's problem. If contraception fails, the consequences are hers to face. Hence the need for access to abortion. Which is another troubling fact about the widespread use of contraception. Because people of goodwill back then argued, well, if you want to reduce the number of abortions, get reliable contraception in the hands of women. This will prevent those abortions. Every child a wanted child. It seemed very logical. But the historical facts demonstrate otherwise. Far from preventing abortion in unplanned pregnancies, these effects as contraceptives were more and more put into use, increased the numbers of abortions to the tune of over a million a year. Before these technological innovations, women had less freedom, it's true. But men were expected to assume responsibility for their welfare. Today, it's true, in many respects, women have a greater freedom to make their own choices. But in a way, so too are men, though in a different way. Men can now say, well, if she's not willing, if she's not willing to use contraception, if she's not willing to get an abortion, why should I sacrifice myself to get married? By making the birth of the child the physical choice of the mother, we've made marriage and child support a social choice of the father, to which many of them say, eh, These innovations were meant to take the consequences out of the use of our sexuality. But these innovations have proven to have dire consequences of their own, a kind of sexual anarchy. And these consequences are clearly more detrimental to women who are now expected as a matter of course to always be available and then to be ready in their hearts to promptly take the life of their own children if those methods should fail. This is the way of the world. Infidelity, divorce, selfishness, promiscuity, broken families, broken hearts. But that's not the only way. There's the church's way. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of chastity. It's the way of radiant joy and fulfillment. Chastity, again, it's not something that's just purely negative, a no to something dirty and wrong. Chastity, together with the other virtues, it's what makes a person to be a trustworthy lover. Not to take from another person what I feel that I need to complete myself, but to gather myself up and give myself away to another and trust myself to someone in a gift. In other words, never to use 
but only to love. When this is lived out by a husband and a wife in marriage, chastity isn't just for people who are unmarried. It's a lifelong virtue. When it's lived out by husband and wife in marriage, it creates a space between them where all their defenses should come down. Where insecurity, it's silly. Where vulnerability is a virtue. Surrender is right. And where the joy of union is heightened over the delight in its innocence. That phrase I take from an essay by Father James Brent, a Dominican priest, who wrote an essay, To Be Someone Radiant, describing in a way that I've, I've never come across, in a, a direct and comprehensive and beautiful way, what this vision of the church's teaching is. And I'll be posting that on the website as well. I recommend that you read it by the end of the week or death, whichever comes first. It's simply the best thing I've ever come across. And all too often, Catholics are thrown back in defensive uh, posture whenever these questions come up. Because we sort of feel like we get battered and bruised in the public square over this stuff all the time. And so we keep our heads down and we try not to think about it too much. And when people bring it up, we change the subject. But that's not the way we can live these things out. We need to have a confidence in the truth and the wisdom of, of what's been given to us. We can't just sit back and let the world go its own way and, and do our best to live it ourselves. We, we want to be confident and persuasive in being able to articulate these things in, in our friendships and in our relationships outside of the church as well as inside. The fact is, contraception destroys chastity. It can't coexist with, with chastity. The reason for that is that Men and women who are trying to become chaste and to remain chaste in every act of their sexual union, they have to give themselves completely to one another and affirm one another as human beings, including their fertility. When that fertility is withheld or suppressed intentionally, they do not give themselves to one another completely. They do not affirm one another completely as human beings with souls and bodies. And this is, what our humans, uh, this is what our hearts desire. Right? This is what we expect out of marriage. And when a couple, in their union, are open to life and welcome the, that new life as a gift, when it's willed by God, their deep-seated selfishness, which all of us bring into our, our commitments, all of us bring into our vocations, that deep-seated selfishness is rooted out there's nothing more effective than children in overcoming that selfish preference for my own way. A friend of mine whom I spoke with at length about this question, and she spoke very convincingly about their attempts, she and her husband, to live out this teaching throughout their marriage. Now, several decades in, and they've welcomed a grandchild. She talked about how much joy her children brought her but she said, I am not in control of my family. We are not in control of our family. We're not out of control. We're not irresponsible. But I'm not managing every little detail. And I don't have a little portion set aside just for myself. I feel the pinch and the demand on my autonomy. My autonomy cannot survive that. 
A blooming, vibrant home that's full to the brim isn't controllable, but it is beautiful. Without vulnerability and that kind of trust, love cannot continue. She said to me, my husband and I, we early on had to realize that when it came to our choices about when and how many children to have, we, we knew that if we weren't feeling the pinch, if it wasn't pushing back on our preferences and on our, our self-will, we were maintaining an illusion that we were in control of our lives and that we were still at the center. And we saw that the power of our marriage was being evacuated, that, that it's, its real potential to sanctify us and draw us into something higher and, and, a, and a more beautiful good was lost. This doesn't mean Catholics are supposed to have as many children as they possibly can. It doesn't mean not paying attention to what your family's needs are and what's going on and when, whether or not we are actually called to have a child at this time. Many of the methods of natural family planning right now are, are fairly sophisticated and can allow couples to space their births in a way that's far more successful than what was available when Paul VI released that document in 1968. There are no happier people, I would say, in my experience, than those young families that I've known with four or five or six kids in their, early, in their late 20s or their early 30s who've said, I'm all in. I'm with the church's way. It costs me a lot. It's messy, sometimes even chaotic, but it's faithful and beautiful, and it answers the desires of our hearts. Imagine how beautiful it is for a woman to be able to experience how much her husband loves her, because he's willing to wait for her, even in marriage, rather than insist she just fix this fertility thing. And for him to be able to show that love for her in this way and know that she appreciates it and savors it. Might this have something to do with the fact that less than 5% of couples practicing this way get divorced, as opposed to the 50% of divorces among marriages in the wider culture? When this document was released, the Holy Father was inviting Catholics into a school of self-mastery that teaches us how we can genuinely aspire to chastity, whether we're married or not, whether we're capable of having children or not. This is a real gift. It's a high call, but it's a difficult one. We take advantage of the help of the sacraments, of prayer, of one another's example. And lest it seem like I'm speaking a word of condemnation, of judgment, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to shame anyone. The church is not here to shame anyone, but to call us back to listen to the voice of our true shepherd. The church loves us whether we have perfected this virtue or not. The church does not recoil from our wounds, but bathes us in mercy and bandages us and then encourages us to begin again to start out anew on the path of this noble and blessed way. The church points us to the grace of God and gives us companions to support us and encourage us along the way, even as we stumble. The only way we fail is if we give up. I hope it's clear why I chose this occasion to talk about this question. In a sense, there's never a good time to do it. You just gotta pick one. 
but I'm liable. I'm held to a standard to say, have you sought to resist the attack of those wolves which seek to scatter and to destroy the sheep? I will continue to speak about this and teach to remind you and to be open to your reminders towards me to be willing to form anyone who wants to set off down this path of wisdom and joy, to do so in season and out of season, hopefully with not insufferably long homilies, too frequently. It's time for us to take up this call again and to live it out by prayerfully reading this document, Humanae Vitae, and allowing it to confront us in all of its prophetic power. On this occasion, I'm aware that these topics can seem very dark and intimidating and dire. But we have many reasons to be hopeful, not the least of which are the members of our own community who have set out on this way. Young women and men in our little family here are setting out on the path of Christian marriage and doing so according to the church's way as best they can. That alone is encouraging. Fewer and fewer young people are getting married at all, let alone striving to live this out in any way other than the popular way. But here at the Diddy Center, I think six couples have gotten engaged in the last several months. All of them are at varying stages of preparation. A number of them were away this weekend to be present at the weddings of other members of the center and celebrate with them. And to them I say, You know this doesn't make you popular. It doesn't earn you admiration out in the world. People may mock you. Even your own family members may express frustration or dismay over your choices. But your faith will conquer these obstacles. Your trust in God and one another will fill you to overflowing, even as it empties you of everything that stands in the way of your goodness. We all know that All of us need God's blessing at all times, but I think particularly important at the time of engagement, Christians are in need of grace as they prepare themselves to form a new family. This morning, we did a blessing for a number of those couples already. A number of them are here tonight, one of them. I'd like to invite them forward for a blessing. Braden and Abby, if you'd like to come up. Are there any other engaged couples here that I don't know about? Come on up. Let's pray for them. If you two would take your place here at the front, and if you'd kneel on the step there, and if you all would kneel and pray with me for God's blessing to come upon Braden and Abby and those, other, those others preparing for marriage, that as they await the day of their wedding, they grow in mutual respect and in their love for one another, that through their companionship and prayer together, they prepare themselves rightly and chastely for matrimony.